0: This is 50 miles per hour.
1: Pop quiz, hot shot! There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on.
0: Stay on or get off.
1: If it drops
2: below 50,
3: Stay on or get off?
2: it blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do?
0: I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed, straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road.
4: If you could have found out what that rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything.
5: No, I don't think so. No. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece.
0: Welcome back to 50 miles per hour, and I hope you've had your coffee or your weedies or whatever keeps you sharp today, because this one is going to go deep. Follow me down the rabbit hole here. So far, we have met and established the director of Speed and its two central stars. The film is hurtling toward a Labor Day 1993 production start. So right around now, I guess, 30 years ago, is when everything I'm about to talk about was going down. Speed has a green light. It's ready to go. Production is imminent. But the brass at 20th Century Fox is about to pull a standard cover-your-ass maneuver. Here is former Fox executive Jorge Saralegui with the context.
6: So right now, we're basically on the verge of shooting. We're close to, I forget exactly, but let's just say a month. So the studio decides that Graham is taken as far as it can go and that we need somebody to punch up the characters. So, the studio does what I've always thought was a bad idea, starting with this bad experience, but I still think it's one of the dumbest things that Hollywood does over and over again, which is they have something that's either good enough or maybe you need something else, but the person you have to hire has to be somebody super expensive. And you pay them an arm and a leg because it'll elevate it that last little bit. And I have a feeling. But if it doesn't, you can say, well, Jesus, I hired, you know, you know, whoever. And this is the only name that I'm going to give to you like in a negative light because it pissed me off. So it's Paul Atanasio.
0: Oh boy, shots fired. Today we're going to talk about what would become, in Jorge's eyes and in the eyes of a number of people involved with the film, an 11th hour crisis for speed. Screenwriter Paul Atanasio is, at this time, what they call a script doctor. This is before he's the Oscar-nominated writer of movies like Quiz Show and Donnie Brasco. He's someone who comes in to, as Jorge says, take a piece of material to the next level. If it sounds vague, that's because it sort of is, but we'll try to explain. This is an uncredited contribution, by the way, and of course, a mutually agreed-upon arrangement. Here's how Paul Atanasio himself puts it.
2: I, I I used to do a lot of this work. I used to do a lot of script doctoring in that period. And I loved it. It was, I don't know if you're a baseball fan, it was it's like being the closer. It's like coming in and you throw gas and you, the crowd loves you and you go home. And um, in this instance, I was more like the setup man, like the
0: eighth, eighth inning man, as it turned out. If you look up Paul's list of credits at IMDb, you'll see a handful of script revision entries for films like Air Force One, Armageddon, and Patch Adams. He's also listed for Rapid Fire, which you'll recall was a Fox movie directed by Dwight Little, who was actually up for the job of directing Speed at one point. Clearly there was a relationship there, and Fox production president Tom Jacobson did what was the typical studio thing to do. Hire a talented script doctor like Paul to stir in some special sauce. And by the way, I'm pointing you to IMDB because this isn't something Paul is big on talking about. I couldn't get a list of titles out of him that he's worked on under the hood or anything. He understands that the job is to be a ghost.
2: When you do the script doctoring jobs, they give you a lot of goodies. It's like a lot of money and a lot of like hanging out with movie stars and being the hero. And I think it's important to remember that some other guy had the idea, started it out, worked for years to get a green light, which is really what a screenwriter's job is. And probably... Didn't feel really great for that man or woman to be replaced at the culmination of what they had been working on by somebody who had, you know, who maybe was a better writer, but also maybe just had more celebrity. So I accepted the goodies. I liked the goodies. But, you know, the goodies were enough.
0: So Paul is brought on to punch up the script for speed when they're just weeks away from shooting. But we're going to run into some faulty memories about what the actual assignment was and, frankly, who suggested what. But let's see what we can discover.
2: Often, I mean, often they would hire... I don't remember specifically. Often they'd hire me to tell them what needed to be done. Sometimes, um, I don't think that was in this instance... You know, oftentimes the, the, the actors were unhappy with with their dialogue that was why i was coming in but i don't remember that being the case um sometimes it was just insurance you know i think they were nervous about the film it was you know jan was the first time director so they just bring in you know they bring in somebody who's gonna sprinkle the magic screenwriting dust and make it better or solve the problems but I don't remember specifically. I think it was just to polish the dialogue.
0: And here is former Fox production president, Tom Jacobson, who appears to have blocked this out a bit. Wow. That's a dim memory. <laughs> See, this book was always in good shape.
5: There was, we just needed to push it up. Like one, something missing, some dynamic between the characters. I frankly didn't even remember the Paul at the party. Isn't that interesting? Partly, but be, probably because it was probably unsuccessful. Um, Paul is really, uh, and still is obviously, well-known for dialogue, for characters. And I think maybe that was the push. We need a little more uh, just interpersonal dynamic. And then I can't remember, there was just something. And when you're really close to a project, you're like, uh, something like missing or something we need to fix, but we don't quite know how to fix it or what it is. Like, it was hard to give the development note.
6: So we hire him. Which I didn't want to do and Mark didn't want to do. Honestly, I wouldn't even say for good reason or bad reason. I would say basically because we like Graham and we thought Graham was good and we thought it was a good script already. You know, we're invested. So fairly or unfairly, we wanna just stick with Graham, but we're overruled in a way that we're told, you know, you know, forget it, Graham's gonna get sole credit, don't worry about it.
0: It was
5: not an easy conversation like it is with any writer to say to Graham, we're gonna bring someone else, you know, he had conceived it and
2: what I remember about the job was, and this is not uncommon, Mark Gordon, Mark was very resistant to changing anything, which like I said, it's not uncommon because producers, you finally got your green light and you're going and some guy comes in. And wants to start changing the thing that got you the green light. Well, if the, if the thing that got you the green light is flawed, how'd you get the green light? You know, smarty pants. Was kind of his attitude.
0: So obviously Tom doesn't have a firm memory of the assignment here. Jorge, beyond his frustration with how this was about to turn out, had nothing vivid to say about the marching orders. Paul seems to think it was meant to be a dialogue polish, and I think that's basically what it was supposed to be, but here is what he remembers about bigger changes he had in mind. And I want you to remember this as well, because there's going to be an echo later.
2: So there were a couple of things that I really wanted to do. You know, I wanted to have like a best friend character who gets killed at the end of Act Two, and I wanted to get off the bus and puncture, you know, periodically punctuate the journey with getting off the bus. Well, Mark was like, well, the whole concept is that you don't get you never get off the bus. The whole thing's on the bus. I said, but you need it like for rhythm. The entire script was just you never left the bus. There were no cutaways because Mark, he was uh, wedded to the purity of the concept that that you never leave the bus. And I said, you I felt, and I think it's proven out by the film that you needed to cut away because cutting away can actually accelerate your pace rather than slowing it down because it creates like a, uh, a slingshot effect. And and it allows you to advance time and jump ahead in time with the, in the periods in between, you know, in the cuts, basically. Things called speed. You don't know, wanna make it play slower. The script didn't build. So you needed it to, con- the script needs to build. And so you needed something like the partner dying to create an emotional build into that ending. They didn't want to do either of that, but I feel a thousand percent confident about those two things. I don't remember what else I changed.
0: I just wanted to briefly connect this with something from a few episodes back. Do you remember that thing that screenwriter Graham Yost said about producer Mark Gordon and the development process and wondering if they could stop the bus at some point? Here, let me just go back to the tape on that.
7: In the, in the sort of development process with Mark, you know, he had a deal with Disney and we would just hang out in his office and just kick things around. And At one point, because passenger 57 had come out, they're on the plane, they land. Then they go have this big action scene at an amusement park. And then they get back on the plane and take off again. And I was watching, I said, that is nonsense. That is a bad studio note. And at one point, Mark said, Is there any point where the bus could stop for a while? I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll blow up and they'll
0: all die, but it can stop. And he said, oh, right, right, right. (laughs) So I held that against him for years. I wanted to bring that back here because it's clear there was a pacing issue to be dealt with and multiple people were aware of it. Now, stick with me here because I'm about to start detailing multiple dated drafts of the screenplay. I've read a March 1993 draft, which would have been a handful of iterations before the one they were looking to punch up here, and in that, you are indeed on the bus the whole time in the second act. There are no cutaways to Harry, because Harry kind of takes the Joe Morton position of being on the flatbed truck alongside the bus. I actually think it's a great piece of propulsive writing. It doesn't bog down at all, though there are some flat lines here and there, and you can tell it needs some kind of a spark, but that's my opinion. Let's go back to Jorge Saralegui. So Atanasio
6: does like a one week rewrite meant to punch up the characters. And what he does is he punches it up and changes a bunch of stuff without having been asked to and then turns it in at the end of his assignment. So therefore, he's done.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's true. You know, I can't help myself. I remember I had this conversation with Sorkin because he used to do a bunch of this, too. And it was, I can't remember the movie, or actually I can't remember it, I don't want to say, but I said, you know, they want me to make it smarter. So I did this, I'm doing this. And, and he said, Paul, they just want you to write jokes. <laughs> and a lot of it was that they just want, you know, sometimes smarter just meant better jokes. And i I was always trying to make it better. So that I'm sure that's fair enough, but then on the other hand, like I said, I think Horat was wrong, because I think those things needed to be changed.
0: If you're wondering to yourself, wait, they did end up cutting away from the bus, and they did end up having a friend, Harry, die at the end of the second act. You're absolutely right. And there was a winding road to get there, but let's keep pushing ahead for now.
6: He made the script clearly worse. You know, just thinking about it, in Infuriates me because it happened to me twice in my career, actually. But the ego of people like that to like come in and instead of just steal the money you're being given, and and you know, and you're a good dialogue writer, improve the dialogue, sharpen the characters, but you have such contempt for the material that you decide, now I'm going to change this, I'm going to change that, and you don't know what the fuck you're doing.
0: So what did Graham Yost think of all of this? Here's how he says he reacted to Paul's punch up.
6: And I'll be honest, when I read
7: his, and I think Paul is a great writer, but when I read his draft, I was, I, you know, I, I always joke that, you know, in, with Peter Gabriel and, and Springsteen, people are always getting their cars and driving around because, you know, it's then thinking about shit. I actually left their house in the Palisades and drove down to the cliffs and just sat there. I was so depressed. It's like, you've fu- you, you, you ruined this movie. And and I can't remember specifically why. There was just the approach to story and characters. I think there was some fucking around with some of the action. And I was just really upset. He also changed the number on
0: the top of the bus, which pissed me off. It's like, what the fuck? And so it was, you know, okay. The original bus number, by the way, was 2574, which Graham says just related to an old address of his. We'll get to how it became 2525 in short order.
6: So he turns it in like on a Friday and it goes on the to Tom Jacobson, Peter Jordan, you know, as well for the weekend to read. So I read it that Friday night and I'm
0: sick. Let's finally hear from producer Mark Gordon this week. Here's what he had to say.
8: I don't know what he was doing. I mean, honestly, he changed the name of the characters. It's like, who asked you to do that? You know, we gave him specific instructions and he just kind of, went off and did what he did, and he was paid a fuckload of money.
2: The name of the character's Annie is my daughter. so That's where that came from. And, she, and she's a filmmaker now. She made a movie uh, called Mickey and the Bear. She's a writer-director.
6: I recall that he really screwed up Sandra's character, like in getting on the bus and who she was in her early interactions. I recall that all being messy.
2: You know, what? I always felt like part of what I offered in that context was a kind of objectivity. It was like... This works, this doesn't work. It really put the doctor in script doctor. I would come in and I'd be like a doctor. I'd say this, here's where it hurts. But yeah, that's fine. That. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure they're like, what, what is he doing?
6: So I read it. And I tell my wife that night, Peter's going to call me tomorrow morning. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Because it sucks. And it's gone backwards. Okay. So, you know, nine o'clock. Saturday morning, my phone rings. It's Peter. And he, he's a calm guy. Um, even when he gets angry, he's he's under control. He's not a, a yeller at all. Um, but he says, what have you done to this script? Go through <laughs> 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 first, first And I go, I know, I know. Um, I, I said, I don't know why he did what he did, but I know that it's a mess. I know that it's got this, 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 and this wrong with it. And so, and so we talked for a while um, and then he and then he basically tells me, okay, I keep in mind that I'm a junior executive and this is my first movie. And I also know he likes me and respects me within reason. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He likes me and respects me for a junior executive who found something that looks pretty good, but not that good. You know what I mean? Okay. So he says, if you need help, don't be too proud to ask. I said, okay. Early the next week, one of the senior vice presidents um, <laughs> comes to me and goes, "Hey, listen, if you want me to come on board and help you out with this thing, I'm I'm happy to." And I'm thinking, uh, you know, yeah, you mean if I want you to come on board and like take over the project? Okay, you're happy to, <laughs> you know? What I mean? And I said, "No thanks," but I realized, you know, I I have to do something. You know, what I mean, and Graham isn't the answer because they've already said Graham's not good enough, right? Fairly or unfairly.
7: But I got hired back for one weekend and I did an emergency rewrite over that weekend and restored the action and cleaned up the, the restored a lot of the stuff to the way it had been, but also made some big changes. But that was also the time that they were reaching out to Walter Parks and Lauren McDonald to come in as additional producers. And they had no interest in,
6: in me working on it. So what I did is I did two things at once. I called up Walter Parks, who, by the way, is probably the only name producer I even know, because he tried to (laughs) hire me to be a story editor, which is how I became a junior executive at Fox. But I know that they think well of him. So I said, Walter, would you look at this thing? And I have a writer in mind who I think could do it. So could you look at it, talk to this writer and see if you think that there's a way to solve the problems that have just been created. And he goes, okay, who's the writer? And I said, Joss Whedon.
0: Okay, a lot of new information there. Let's start with the producers, Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald. Walter Parks was, at that time, the revered writer of War Games, a 1983 thriller about a computer gamer who stumbles onto a back door into a military central computer and nearly starts World War III. Great movie, Matthew Broderick, check it out if you haven't already seen it. That script earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. But he had most recently written Sneakers, a sort of high-tech Dirty Dozen starring Robert Redford and Dan Aykroyd, that became a huge hit for Fox in 1992, right around the time he and his wife and producing partner Laurie MacDonald had a development deal with the studio. Walter had also produced the Best Picture nominee, Awakenings, for director Penny Marshall, and he and Laurie were soon to head up director Steven Spielberg's production company, Amblin Entertainment. So, lots of cachet. But here's the thing. Hiring a writer to basically ghostwrite some revisions is a totally standard thing in Hollywood. Hiring someone to ghost produce that process, at least according to Walter and Laurie, was unique. Here's what they had to say. Hori, as an executive has a pretty
1: good story sense. And I think we sort of <laughs> saw that in each other. And we remember getting the phone call and it almost felt like the producer's version of a last minute production rewrite. It seemed like there was issues with the script, issues getting the cast together. And they just really, you know, it was very interesting. They just asked Lori and me to read the script. And, um, you know, really, there was a very commercial movie
9: there. But yeah, there were some problems. The premise was so insane in a way, so ridiculous, and yet so delightful. And And the script wasn't working, but I think we, we pretty much, we read it and immediately had some thoughts on it and thought it was a really, it was a kind of challenge we'd never taken on before, coming in so late to something and thought it would be interesting.
0: And now Joss Whedon. I'm sure many things come to mind when I say that name. Today, Joss and his tonal voice as a writer are sort of inherent in our pop-cultural bedrock. His work in television in the mid-aughts with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly, and Angel established an empire that soon led him to the geek promised land as the director tasked by Marvel Studios with bringing Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Thor, and Captain America together for the first time in The Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron. He also, infamously, was brought on by Warner Bros. in 2017 to reconfigure Zack Snyder's Justice League for a wider audience. There is, of course, a lot more to say about that situation and the, quote, Snyder Cut, but please don't make me talk about it here. At this stage, however, in 1993, all of that was far away on the horizon. Joss had sold the feature film script for Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Fox a few years earlier and had also seen it really stray from his intentions in the resulting 1992 film. He had worked in television on series like Roseanne and Parenthood as well, but he had developed a little bit of a history with Jorge, who was about to call in a favor. And so here is Joss Whedon.
3: Jorge is a major part of my history. I had been writing comedies, was known for comedies mostly, and uh, people were pitching me comedies because I worked in television comedy. And, and then um, dogs, comedies with dogs in the lot. Some just really, really brutal meetings. And um, Jorge, I had lunch with him. He was pitching me a dog comedy.
0: Yeah, it seems like as far back as this, Jorge was still trying to get that Hamlet pig comedy turned dog comedy going. Or maybe it was just another one, who knows? Anyway, back to Joss.
3: And he told me the premise for Speed. I was like, oh my God, that's funny. So cool. That is the best. And um, as a joke, I was like, I had a joke pitch for a Die Hard ripoff. I was like, it's Die Hard on the George Washington Bridge. And he's just like, go home. (laughs) Write that script. He's like, it's not a joke. (laughs) Go home and write it. Um, You know, Do not option it. Do not. Do anything with it, finish it, give it to your agent. You will never be pitched a dog comedy again. And he was right.
6: A script that he sold that he actually never got made called Suspension, Die Hard on the Bridge. That he, he sold for like a zillion bucks and never got made. But, but I, he and I had spoken about it. And, and so we had a relationship. I knew Joss because when I was a reader, I read the Buffy movie script. Okay, when it came in. I was a reader and I gave it a yes. You know, we're not a yes, a maybe, but that's what a yes is. Um, you know, but I recommended it. So I get them together and Walter tells me, okay, I'll come on and supervise this. So I call Peter Chern and I say, how does this sound to you? And it was like, it was the first like smart thing I ever did <laughs> in my job. You know, you know I mean, it's one thing, you know, to be a good script analyst and say, speed got something. Okay. Just conceptually, which I did do. And there's another thing to fight the way I fought to keep it going and all that, which I did do also. But in this case, it was kind of like, okay, you're in trouble. You need credibility or this whole thing is in danger of imploding, you know, because they said they don't care about Mark. Peter said, you can get rid of of the producer. You can, but in effect, they told me do whatever you have to do, get rid of the producer, bring somebody else on and, I mentioned the name Walter Parks and the water's calm. It was amazing. That was it. It's under control. There's no longer a crisis. There's no script. There's no longer a crisis. So then I speak to Mark, who is, you know, pissed, upset, and nervous as to what it could mean, you know, that he could be losing control of his movie or whatever. And I told him that he wasn't, that the arrangement that I'd made with Walter, was it's it's be around right now at the beginning just in terms of, like, calming Peter. But really, he's going to supervise Just Whedon, and Mark and I are not. So that's the arrangement. So Mark, I mean, he has no choice except to accept it, but he wasn't happy about it. And, you know, I mean,
0: I don't blame him. So we're kind of back to square one. What needs to happen to this script? Here's Walter Parks with that echo that I mentioned earlier. I remember the
1: the biggest thing that struck us going in was in the draft we read, the Jeff Daniels character died on about page seven. He got blown up. And it it just struck us that it put a pall over the entire movie. It, it really is a movie that isn't trying to be particularly deep dish, but it's really about the visceral thrills and the fun of the situation. And um, it also struck us that if you lost that main character, one of the two main characters, you didn't have anything to cut to. And to keep that bus sequence alive without being really invested with the voice that's on the other side of the communication with Keanu would be a mistake. So I remember that was was a, a big first thought. And it also gave us something we really needed, which was it's a very linear script. So by keeping him alive, it gave him the opportunity for us, the opportunity for him to be killed at the end of the second act. And that's sort of where you needed to boost the emotional stakes of the movie.
0: And here is Tom Jacobson recalling a meeting where this was presented by Walter, Laurie, and Joss.
5: I remember this meeting with Joss. He said, look, your script's in, in good shape. It needs, it needs to have a little more pop to it. And, but you got one problem. Uh, you don't have enough motivation going into the third act. Keanu's partner um, was killed in the elevator sequence. So that was Joss's big pitch. He was like, let's not kill him there. Because they're buddies, and Jeff's a bit of a mentor to Keanu's character. Let's save that and do that at the end of the second act. So that whole sequence where the Dennis Hopper character blows up Jeff Daniels' house and kills him was new with Joss. And then that gives the motivation to propel our hero into the third act to really bring down the bad guy. That's the big note I remember from the Joss rewrite. Good rewrites are less about like a funny quip or exchange, but a dynamic that changes, you know, some idea that changes the dynamic of uh, the journey of the movie, and that clearly did.
0: Yeah, I know. It's the same note Paul had. It's a complete mess. And here, let me make it messier. I can't help but wonder where in the process Harry went through another drastic shift. In that March 1993 draft I mentioned, he was revealed, sort of clumsily, to be the bomber. He's pissed about not getting promoted to the rank of Captain, which means a great deal to him as a second-generation police officer. The reason he's not promoted, by the way, and why he never will be is because in the opening elevator sequence, the Howard Payne character, who at that time was a blonde, pony-tailed weirdo named Rudy, ended up killing a hostage thanks to Jack's recklessness. That costs Harry, and that's sort of the flimsy motivation for his actions. And Harry is also in cahoots with a guy named Squint, who is the head of the LAPD bomb squad. It's kind of rushed and doesn't fully work. And Graham says all of that changed around this period. And then the biggest
7: note, and I'm sure you know, Harry was the bad guy, right? And so, and that happened around the time that Walter and Laurie came in, right before Joss was brought on and right after Paul had been on and I was brought back briefly. And I remember Walter saying, Um, it's an interesting idea what what you're trying to do with Harry. He says, I don't know if it's gettable, but I don't think you should do it. I don't, I think we should just be one bad guy beginning to end. You know, the thing I've said in interviews is that my whole concern was I loved, um, you know, Hans Gruber so much that I wanted there to be a relationship between the bad guy and, um, and the good guy and there, there to be some history.
0: Now, when I asked Walter and Laurie about this, if they recalled a draft where Harry was revealed to be the villain in the end, this was their response. We were spared that one.
9: I don't think we read that version, but the partner was not the character that's in the version that that we were. We did change a great deal about that story. I believe we pitched it even before we brought Joss in, but I don't recall.
0: And here is Paul Atanasio racking his brain.
2: No, I don't remember that because I was used, I remember wanting to use him to create like poignancy, um, whatever, like uh, rooting interest in to to create emotion at the ending. It would be consistent with how I approach these things that I would try to amplify the villain. I don't remember what I did though. I was very dogmatic about it at the time that, you know, that the antagonist is what gave movies structure. You know, now I'm a little looser, but at the time, you know, I had, like,
0: doctrines that I used to follow. You know what? Screw it. Let's drag Jeff Daniels into this and see what he recalls. You know, the guy who played the part. Jeff, do you remember a draft where your guy was revealed to be the bomber in the end? Never saw that. That would have been, oh, oh my god,
10: yeah, gee, you yeah, that would have been, because there's just more to do.
0: Okay, so it had at least been weeded out by the time they were out to him to play the part. And so they sent the script,
10: and uh, I died in the elevator shaft. I, I died. It was like page 22. I, I miss a step, fall, you know, 50 floors, and die. And I told the agent, I said, the career's in trouble, but it's not in that much trouble, so forget it. They go, well, hang on. They're doing a rewrite. You die later. Okay, well, I'll wait for that. And I, sure enough, I died later in the house,
0: like page 80. I said, great, I'm in. Let me try and clear this up just a little bit before we continue. The most widely available draft of the script is originally dated August 31, 1993, and that's the production draft. It includes all of the production revisions through November. That is basically Joss Whedon's draft. However, there is a draft dated August 6th at the WGA Foundation's Shavelson Webb Library in the Guild's vast screenplay collection there. And yeah. I literally drove out there to read this. This draft predates Joss, and in reviewing a lot of the differences between that and the March draft, Graham and I both came to the tenuous conclusion that it is, at least in part, that rescue draft, including both Paul's work and Graham's efforts to get it back into shape before Joss took a crack at it. In that draft, Harry is no longer the villain, and indeed he does die in the elevator sequence. Page 19 to be exact. And he doesn't fall. He gets blown up, which, as you heard, is what Walter remembered. So obviously, they tried a couple of different versions of Harry dying in that first sequence, but in the end, Joss, Walter, and Laurie moved that event to the end of the second act to heighten the emotional stakes, which is exactly what Paul said the script needed. Meanwhile, in this August 6th draft, Howard Payne, who would ultimately be played by Dennis Hopper, is his own character. And he's also been amplified, to steal Paul's word. Like he kills a guy in a bar with a pencil at one point because he's trying to watch news coverage of the bus. Graham doesn't claim that one. And Paul has no memory of changes like this. But I'm going with that was a Paul thing. Okay, you still with me? All right, here's Walter Parks. I think, however, because I remember talking about it,
1: Lori, did we make the suggestion that... um Dennis's character was an ex-bomber because we sort of lifted it from
9: Juggernaut? Ah, I don't know if that was, you know, it's so hard. This is a long time ago. I think that might have been something we brought to it.
1: If we brought that to the table, and I don't remember we did, I do know that Juggernaut is one of those movies that over the many, many years that we've developed scripts, I find myself referring to a lot. That Juggernaut is a very underrated It's sort of 60s disaster suspense picture directed by uh, Richard Lester with an amazing cast uh, from Anthony Hopkins to, you know, Omar Sharif to uh, just as incredible. And in that it's about a bomb that's put on a uh, on a ship and the bad guy turns out to be an ex bomb disposal guy, you know, a, a former colleague. And I don't recall if that was already in the script or if that was something that happened at our suggestion.
7: Well, I do remember Walter saying, you know, sometimes it's like, uh, and this is back in, you know, God, you know, f- forgive us any errors here in, in, in judgment and in talking about this, but it's sort of early 90s talking about pedophile priests. And the one theory has been, or at least was then, that some people become Priests because they're pedophiles and they think that maybe they can be cured by by being a priest, and that in in a sense that maybe Howard Payne had been someone who wanted to blow shit up and be, went into the bomb squad because he had that urge to be like an arsonist be, joining the fire department, and then now after his retirement, his true self has come out and now he can do the thing that he's always wanted to do, which is blow shit up. Um, I remember Walter talking about that.
0: We'll get deeper into the character of Howard Payne and the whirlwind process of trying to cast him in all these different iterations next week. But for now, here is what Joss says he wanted to do with him.
3: The bad guy, when they told, they told me they wanted Robert Duvall, and I had this very sort of like low-key, um, my my actual pitch for the bad guy was Charles Broden. Because I wanted him to be a nerd wanted him to be a quiet man who makes things <laughs> with his hands and um you know very meticulously and has for years and is angry in a almost passive aggressive bomber sort of way uh passive suddenly very aggressive and um uh making sandwiches and and sort of being quiet and it's funny cuz You know, then they bring in Dennis Hopper because he he will make everything pop. And there's a lot of lines in the movie that were written to be just sort of like this. But Dennis gets a hold of it and, um, you know, it comes out very different. And then I started doing rewrites and leaned into, you know, being a little over the top. Um, And then actually, I think the next thing I worked on was Waterworld and they were like, where, 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 I think it was Lawrence Fishburne. And then it was like, it's going to be Dennis Hopper. I'm like, what's happening to me? All
0: right, moving on for now, we still haven't quite zeroed in on what Paul had apparently done to screw up this script. Here is what Joss recalls of some of the other issues he faced when he sat down to work.
3: I think there was some very old-fashioned writing in the sense of like, we got to know everybody's, everybody had a backstory. Everybody had a moment you know you know whatever baggage they were bringing along um and there were some moments that were kind of florid and, and and speeches and stuff where maybe people should not have a speech and this is from a guy who never shuts up um I mean his characters either there was you know the whole speech uh when he you know after the bus um crashes and they're okay and they're lying there and she's like, why do men like him exist? He's like, because they, why did he kill Beth? He's like, because he lived in a world where Beth, it was just, it was not the time.
0: That is indeed in the August 6 draft, which is what leads me to believe a lot of Paul's work is in there. And yeah, it's sort of clunky. Here, let me read the actual exchange. Like Joss said, this is after the bus has exploded and they're lying there and Annie is super upset, largely about the death of Helen, Beth Grant's character. So Annie says, I don't even know her last name, but she knew all my secrets. Every morning, everything I'd tell her, all my stories, I guess because she liked hearing them so much. She said I was better than Cable. And then as Annie breaks down, she bellows, Oh God, why? To which Jack responds, Because there's a guy out there who hates a world that has Helens in it, because his never will. Anyway, I'm putting that into context because it's going to be important that this draft indeed had a lot of Paul's work in it.
3: And I think my favorite, oh dear God, no, Um, and I don't know whose suggestion this was, but it was in the Adonazio draft, was that um, they wanted Annie to be able to be, you know, light and funny while being, you know, uh, also in peril. And is amazing at doing both of those things at once but in order to justify it they made her character a stand-up comedian and i was just like that's the worst thing you can do <laughs> that is the least relatable person and every time you make she makes a joke you're gonna be like what everyone's gonna die and you're trying out material like you're looking for a tight five in the middle of doom it just I was like, oh, no, we'll hate her when she's funny if we know that she's that's her job. And I was just like, they should just be people on a bus because, you know, we'll care about them anyway.
0: On that point, you'll recall from a previous episode that Graham has already copped to trying to make the character a stand up comedian to get some humor into the mix and that he had Ellen DeGeneres in mind at the time. Moving on.
3: One of the other big changes was um, making Alan Ruck not an asshole lawyer but just a, a nice tourist who's completely overwhelmed. Um, because I just did not believe in the guy. First of all, how good a lawyer is he if he's taking the bus. But um, but more importantly, he just he would throw conflict at Keanu Reeves at all times for nothing. like it just it, a human person would not do that. And his character died, and then they were like, well, now he's likable, so he can't die. And I'm like, why? But then again, I, later on, would become known for going, why can't they die? If somebody you like dies, it's there's more tension. But I get it. I totally don't think he needed to die, because right after that, you're going to have a romantic moment with Keanu and, and Sandra, and you don't want that weight on you.
0: Let's actually hear from Alan Ruck on that. Alan is a great character actor. I'm sure you know him from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, TV's Mad City, Yann de Speed follow-up, Twister, and most recently, HBO's Succession. Here's what he remembers about this change.
11: Originally, that guy was conceived as a, like, uh, a prick of a lawyer who, um, I forget what the exact circumstances were that he could not drive his BMW. I can't remember if it was DUI's or uh, unpaid tickets, or I can't remember what, the, but he was stuck on this bus and he was really pissed off about it. And he was an asshole. He was just, you know, uh, uh, a guy who thought a great deal of himself. And um, he was just a horrid prick. And um, I don't know, I just guess because of my who I am and what I look like and my personality, Jan decided to go in a different way and decided to make this guy into a tourist. And up until that point in my career, I hadn't been allowed to play too many assholes, which are really satisfying roles to play.
0: This brings me to another element at play here. We're going to get into this with Alan and all the other actors on the bus in a few weeks when we finally introduce them here, but by way of a preview, you'll soon learn that some of them were frustrated with this rewrite because a lot of their backstories had been cut out. Ortiz, for example, played by Carlos Carrasco, had a bombshell wife who figured into some of the script's humor. Beth Grant's character, Helen, was recently engaged and had things to say about that. David Kriegel's character, Terry, who was originally a USC film school student, plays a role in finding the UHF signal of the camera that's in the bus, and here, Stevens, Alan Ruck's asshole lawyer, who we indeed learn is riding the bus because of a DUI. It would appear to me that all of this was the work of Paul Atanasio, an effort to flesh out the secondary characters and give some of the events of the story a little more meaning as a result. Joss, I think smartly, streamlined all of that, while yonda de Bont ultimately shot the film in such a way that the ensemble really stands out. You get who these characters are, at least as much as you need to. Anyway, again, more on that in due time. Here's Joss.
3: The first time I turned in pages, we went through them, and I just remember a couple of times of Mark saying, Are we in love with this? And Walter saying, Yes, we are. And, um... You know, I just think it um, Mark has an incredible notes for projects. I think this one was just, it. you know, Walter that whole um, War Games, Sneakers that whole, you know Light with stakes. like he, he's just got that sensibility um, and this is a movie that t- if it takes itself too seriously, it will take away from the seriousness of the movie. People always assume the script doctor comes in to make jokes and usually it's to connect things so that they make sense and make them try to matter. And you also get hired a lot to make the third act smaller. <laughs> but in this case, I didn't have to worry about that because I was like, they, I have an alternative a pitch to the plane yet. Yeah. And they're like, we bought the
0: plane. I'm like, okay then. As things went along here, Joss started working with the actors, both before and during production particularly Keanu Reeves, who had some significant input for the character of Jack Traven based on his own research and immersion into the role.
3: You know, the speed is, I think with die hard, the sea change where we went from, you know, you're out of control. You know, you're a hot shot. You're a maverick. Um, you're a renegade To I am going to try to make the people live in this situation. Like, much more relatable um down to earth kind of people in these situations and um less driving through the streets in such a way i mean obviously with speed there should have been just a body count beyond number, It's la but um but less deliberately sort of driving down sidewalks um uh to catch somebody um and in fact he's not trying to catch somebody he's trying to save people you know die hard he was like a devoted husband and all this stuff and i have to say about that text, but this, you know, sort of continued that trend. And Keanu has a lot to do with it because um, of who he is, just his energy and his thoughts. And he talked about being with the SWAT guys and how they are unfailingly polite. He's like, they're only ever about diffusing the situation. And he's he like, they call everybody, sir, or ma'am. And I was like, click and that was it I was like okay I understand this character now my take on it was that it wasn't that he was a hot shot it's that he was kind of a lateral thinker that he just was going to do what felt right and he was going to have an odd approach to it but generally speaking it would work out but just the certain man, I was just like ah that gives me so much because everybody's you know bluster was the order of the day and then this is the opposite and he was like I don't want to pull my gun on that guy I don't because I know that, that I the, you know was so like I wouldn't I was like I don't want you to either we just kind of have to <laughs> just for attack the um they're not going to let you not pull your gun um uh but we'll you know we'll get it back as soon as we can
0: <laughs> And we should probably hear from Jan de Bont on all of this as well. After all, coming out of this project, Walter and Laurie, then in their post at Amblin Entertainment, would bring Joss on to crank up the dialogue on Twister, which they also hired Jan to direct. Here's what Jan had to say about Joss's work in really getting the script for Speed into a shape where it fit in with his penchant for capturing a level of realism and authenticity.
4: So Joss comes up with those simple things that kind of strows you off a little bit. When you think about it, Ah, oh, wow! This is exactly the right thing you want to do. And that he had a had a sense for that. I needed dialogue that would fit real people. You know, I didn't want dialogue that nobody would s- speak like that on the bus. You know, and 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 it had to be real. It had to feel like um, the whole, the, all the characters in the movie. They are basically accidental presence of those people. They just happen to be there at that particular moment. And just for two hours of the life, they got, they got pulled into a situation. So when they spoke, it had to be something what they would say, how they would react, how they would respond. And also how the, between the scenes with Sandra and Keanu, the, the, the dialogue itself in the beginning was really too stilted, too, too little, too um, trying to be uh, funny or, or having like a lot of those... Lines that's supposed to be like and diet has a lot of those lines. There's, there's one-liners quite often you leave, you you read those one-liners that you for instance like on on even a lethal weapon and it's and a lot of those. ones. that and they 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 group group lines. They're written by groups of people because I, I know if because that's uh, we had script meetings for that movie and, and where the whole production team the uh, uh, writers studio people. I mean meeting of twenty five people in I was there to to come up with some lines for the dialogue, but lines that are written by committee they sound always artificial and and just totally understood that, and the amount of times I called them during shooting is like just we do this, and it absolutely doesn't work that line and but also, in a way, it has to be more minimal too. You cannot have long you know sentences and and and, and they have to be very right for the age sort of the, of the people too. Mm-hmm. I mean, Keanu is young, Sandra is young, and a lot. They you, you cannot have the, them speak like like, like stage slides or so, you know what I mean? And and he was so great in coming up with those throwaway lines that are so fantastic. Uh
3: I used to do uh wake and bake with my buddies every now and then. And so it was Saturday, we were all going off somewhere and we were. Very stoned. and i get a phone call i think it's from mark gordon and he's like Jan needs some dialogue when they're coming around the car at the beginning i'll hold like you will not hold i will call you back in five minutes and i wrote some dialogue I called him back in five minutes it was fine but oh my god i was like this is like a nightmare
6: the things that just did that stand out apart from the the, the many little things that, that he did right the two that he did is he came up with the Arizona Wildcat thing that that's how they catch um, Dennis Hopper. Okay, that was Josh. And the other thing was that line that captures who the Sandra Bullock character is about relationships don't work in, under, in, in you know, except in the, whatever it is. You're to
3: get mushy, Amelia. <laughs> Maybe. I got <think> mine. <laughs>
1: hope not, because, you know, relationships that start under intense circumstances, they never last. Oh,
5: yeah? Yeah, I've done extensive studying on this.
6: <laughs> right, that. Okay, that was Joss. That was, that was Joss, and if you think about it, that kind of, like, framed her attitude, sort of, right? Okay, so those are the ones that really set out in my mind.
0: All right, if you've made it this far, you're one of the chosen. Now it is time for me to get to my own personal rosebud on this journey. What about the film's most famous line? Pop quiz, hotshot! This could just be a speed fanatic talking, but I think it's fair to say those three words are embedded into pop culture. Like, it's a thing, okay? And it was definitely a thing back then. Do you remember when Pulp Fiction won Best Movie at the MTV Movie Awards that year? This was Quentin Tarantino at the time.
8: Pop quiz, hotshot. You go into award ceremonies all year long. You keep... Losing to Forrest Gump. It's really annoying the hell out of you. What do you do? You go to the MTV Awards.
0: This line has always been attributed to Joss Whedon. And I mean, it certainly sounds like a Joss Whedon line, doesn't it? Plus, Graham completely forfeited any credit for it long ago. For the past 25,
7: 27 years of my life, People would come up to me and say, pop quiz, hot shot. And I have to just nod and smile. That's Joss's line. That wasn't me. Harry would say, hey, I got a scenario for you, pal. What happens if blah, blah, blah. Well, you shoot the hospital. You shoot the host- You know, It was there, but Joss gave it this wonderful polish and this wonderful snap to it. And I have to just nod and smile. That's Joss's line.
3: No, it's not. That was already in it. That is not me. Um, It's the only line people remember, (laughs) but I cannot take credit for it, for it is not mine.
0: Wait, really? Joss didn't write that line? Are you sure? Jan, was Pop Quiz Hotshot Joss Whedon's line?
3: Totally. Really? I mean, gosh, it'd be hilarious if I did write it in all these years I'd just forgotten. Um, Maybe it's Paul's.
0: Paul, did you write that line? That would actually be hysterical after all of this.
3: Gosh, I can't remember.
0: Are you telling me no one is going to claim ownership over the most famous line from this movie?
2: John says he didn't write it?
3: But I cannot take credit for it. For it is not mine.
2: And Graham says he didn't write it? That wasn't me. Oh my god, I don't know. I don't have any of those drafts around here. You to look them up. Well,
0: shit. There's a mystery I wouldn't have expected to leave with this podcast. I do know that Joss has said before that he didn't write the line and that he actually didn't like it because of how it sort of connects to the canon of action cinema that Speed is looking to move away from. But nevertheless, everyone else has always said it was him.
3: If you find out that it is, let me know, because then I'll feel all full of myself. I feel like it was there. I never connected with it. Um, I really don't... Yeah, I don't think I can take credit for it. And I think Shoot the Hostage was already in there. I know that because... Was it on speed? I'm trying to remember there was at least one meeting where they were like, and then he shoots the hostage because nobody's done that, you know. People have never seen that before. I'm like, except in another 48 hours and Sam Fuller's 40 guns.
0: All right, let's get a verdict. Here's what I think happened. Pop quiz hot Shot is in the August 6th draft, which you'll recall predates Joss's contributions. It actually was Harry dropping the quote hot Shot" first. He says, all right, hotshot, pop quiz. In the movie, he just says, all right, pop quiz, and then later, Hopper is the one who says hotshot. Anyway, as Graham said, the general concept was there, that Jack and Harry would present scenarios to each other to pass the time. But the actual line, pop quiz, hotshot, came from someone else. And whoever it was, by the way, sort of fell in love with it because it is all over that August sixth draft. Like, it's a reprise that keeps coming back, probably too much. So, by process of elimination, the line exists in the draft that contains Graham and Paul's work. Graham says he didn't write it, Paul says he doesn't remember, and this is a draft written before Joss was hired. So, therefore, the guy who wrote the most famous line of speed is the guy who supposedly fucked up the script so badly that they had to bring in another writer and a pair of producers to oversee that writer's efforts. Bless him for not remembering, but I've decided that the person who wrote Pop Quiz Hotshot was Paul Atanasio. Wow. Wouldn't
7: that wouldn't that be wouldn't that be Hollywood? Wouldn't that be the history of the movies? It's like someone sent me, they've got a page of all the alts for the ending of Casablanca. Because those were all just done in post, those lines as they're walking away. And they tried them all and they watched them and they said, no, the you know, beginning of a beautiful friendship was just one of three choices. So I wouldn't be surprised. You know what? I might have hated the draft so much that I, you know, didn't want to believe that that line was uh, from that draft.
0: And fair enough. I mean, everyone else certainly seems to have blocked out just about anything that might have slipped through from Paul's draft into the finished product.
8: Oh, there's nothing left of, there's zero of Paul. I think one line that he wrote is in the movie. I think it was when Keanu says... Fuck you, and and Dennis says something about the Constitution. Are you ready to die,
1: friend? Fuck you. Oh, in 200 years, we've come from my regret, but I have one life to give for my country, to fuck you. Go ahead, drop the stick.
0: And by the way, Paul did say that sounded like him. But there are a number of things in that August 6th draft that are in the finished film. And again, who knows how many of them were added by Graham in the months leading up to Paul coming on, but it can't be all of them. One, for instance, is the Jaguar driver, played by Glenn Plummer, who Jack commandeers in pursuit of the bus. Graham does say that was him, but there's also the establishment of a sort of loft lair for Howard Payne above Pershing Square, and little bomb squad details like clipping a battery to the bomb under the bus and trying to dismantle it, and the plot device of having that transmitter beacon tracking the money, showing them that Payne has it and is on the run. The line Interactive TV, Wave of the Future, shows up in there, and Graham says that wasn't him. Helen also dies trying to escape on the sly. In the earlier drafts, she died tragically as they try to unload passengers early. Oh yeah, and as Graham said, Paul changed the bus number to 2525. And there's actually a direct reference from Payne to the 1969 Zager and Evans song to explain it.
11: In the year 2525
3: If man is still alive If women can survive, they may fall.
0: And I think 25-25 is better anyway. Because what's 25 plus 25? You got it. So I just think there's more Paul in there than everyone would like to remember. Including, as we have scientifically deduced the film's most famous line. And not that he's looking to get some love here, by the way. I'm the guy crazy enough to track all these people down and force them to remember fleeting 30-year-old events.
2: You know, it's Graham's film. Graham's the one who sweated through the whole development of it. Graham's the one who invented it. I don't have to go hogging credit now and saying, I did this and I did that. like, Because really, whatever I did on these movies, sometimes it was significant. It was never as significant as the guy who went or the woman who went through the creation of it and the birthing of it.
0: Circling back to Joss, it's actually a wonder that he didn't write Pop Quiz Hotshot because it's hard to find any line in this movie that isn't his. Both he and Graham surmised that about 90% of the dialogue is Joss.
3: Uh, there's some lines that I like a whole lot. There is one just where I'm like, well, I'm never going to stop talking about class, am I? um when he says you're crazy and he says poor people are crazy bag of money i'm eccentric it's just like yeah put something in there about how rich people get away with shit
1: well i i need to take this opportunity one of my favorite lines in the movie is donated by my partner here we talk about sandra bullock do you recall her yes i do it was just a throwaway but when she's finally behind the uh Wheel of the uh, she's of the such bus. a great and, driver, and you kind of go, Well, right. And Keanu says, You use bus, well, Nat usually says, No, they took my my uh, driver's license away. says, Why speeding? and you got to the bus going like that, and you sort of just love her at that moment.
9: Yeah, it it was what a moment that gave you because it really made no sense that suddenly this woman happens to be an expert, dri- you know, and she's comfortable driving that fast and kind of defined her character at the same time.
0: Quick note here, that's funny because it's an explanation Graham had been wrestling with himself. As you'll recall, the character had been everything from an ambulance driver to a driving school instructor in other drafts. Anyway, we're cruising to the finish line here, I promise. Now, Joss Whedon is credited by all involved with stepping in and saving a screenplay that had gone off the rails. He gave it exactly the spark it needed, but things were going to go south soon enough.
7: I read Joss's script, and I go, oh, thank God. I'm so relieved because it's a funny script. But, you know, w- where, where things went bad between us is when he didn't get any credit. And he was um, not happy when we ran into each other at the premiere. And it was like he was blaming me. It was like, dude, that's the WGA. Of course, I'm going to write a letter, letter saying I deserve sole credit. I sat with that thing for years. You know, that's my baby. You did great work. But they no longer allow the additional dialogue credit you know the wj took that out so this is what we're left with
3: and um
7: i don't believe i ever said dude
3: grammy came up to me on the weekend the night it opened fox was having a little party in the because they were so excited and we hadn't met and he came up and we replied and, and he's like you know man you'd have done the same thing and I was like, well, we can't know that, can we? That got me. That really upset me because it's not true. And I got to live long enough to find out it was not true. In fact, the next thing, very soon after, was Toy Story. And when John Lasseter was like, I think all the animators, should, the key animators, should get, you know, screenplay credit. I was like, hell yeah. So I was like, oh, good. Because I would hate to have found out that that was true. I don't like taking credit for things I haven't done um and it doesn't mean that his credit would disappear but uh it's just when somebody says to me you've done the same thing somebody assumes your state of mind uh it makes me cranky and in fact uh i didn't ever read graham's version until the studio put my name on the picture um and i have the only poster for speed where my name is on it (laughs) uh because then uh it went with arbitration, and um, so I read, and I had changed some of the plot elements in Paul's, and I read Graham's, and I realized that I had changed them back to what Graham had written so uh, originally had, and um, that I didn't know about, and uh, so I was like, well, I'm not going to get a credit.
0: Okay, Joss has said this a few times over the years, that he knew he was doomed with the WGA when he read Graham's previous drafts and realized some of his structural changes had already been conceived in those drafts. I asked him specifically what he means, and he, like Walter and Laurie, hit this same note again about killing Harry at the end of the second act. Remember, Paul said they didn't want to do that when he brought it up. As best I can tell, I think Graham's sort of rescue draft that we talked about earlier or one of them, not the August 6th one obviously, must have eventually incorporated this change that Paul wanted to do. Joss didn't know about it because he was working from a version that killed Harry in the first sequence. So I think, once again, Paul Atanasio deserves a little more credit here, and that the quote, gram drafts that Joss read during arbitration must have included some of these ghost written structural changes from Paul. So, yeah, he realized he wasn't going to get a credit after seeing this, But again, from what I can tell, those changes should probably be attributed to the guy whose work had otherwise pissed everyone off. Anyway, back to Laurie and Walter.
9: It's very tough once the basic story has been laid out by another writer or two writers to get that credit unless the work is, you know, so substantial. i, I we thought we fought hard to for him to get it. Um, and I think it was deserved, but it's it's very tough when you're a later writer in the in the run. I think there probably weren't enough major story changes to um to warrant it or you know that was decided during the arbitration. but really every the kind of feel of it, all of the dialogue, I believe ended up being Joss's. Do you agree, Walter?
1: I do. and I think it's an interesting thing about Writers' Guild arbitrations, which is tone is something that's very hard to
6: arbitrate. I'm sure Joss rewrote essentially all the dialogue, but it was the same story. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, and it's an action movie. And so you know how, it, yeah, you can change dialogue, but you're kind of saying the same thing, like open the door. You know what I mean? Except you're saying it one way is Graham's way, one way is Joss's way. If it's, how do, we, how do we keep this bus going and the scenes are all basically the same scenes, um, then changing dialogue, because if you think about it, okay, if you want to be a bag, all you do is go in there and change the dialogue. And then you immediately get credit. It's too easy to change the dialogue, especially in an action movie, when a lot of the dialogue is is just serviceable stuff.
8: And I wrote a note to Time Magazine about this, or I think it was Time. Joss had been talking about, you know, he was sort of the the new kid, wonderkind, and he had given an interview about how he had saved Speed or he had written uh, on Speed and he didn't get any credit. And I was kind of pissed off on Graham's behalf because Graham got sole credit because the Writers Guild determined that he did whatever percentage was necessary to not share credit with anybody else. Doesn't mean that Joss didn't do a great job. He did. He was really good. He's a really talented guy, came up with some great funny lines, came up with some really good ideas, but you know, don't piss on another guy's thing. Just be gracious. It's really comes down to how do people, how do people deal with credit? And if they don't get it, do they, you know, go public with it and say, I should have gotten credit? Or do you just say, Hey, I was hired. I got paid money to do this job. The writer's guild in their infinite wisdom decided that I didn't deserve credit. So keep your mouth shut. I don't find that that kind of behavior very attractive.
3: Um, I don't remember exactly. I know that I did say that I had written, you know, a bunch of the dialogue and that I was disappointed not to get a credit. Um, I didn't say I saved the movie because that's not something you would say, but I worked very hard on it. And I was, you know, it being an early gig, I was pretty disappointed. I was pretty hurt by that. But the idea that I was, you know, mouthing off about the film and bragging. That's just not my way. That's very disrespectful.
5: I don't know. You know, I mean they have specific rules about percentages and whatnot. And you know, they do what they do. And a lot of writers think it's a tough process, but it works.
3: It is not necessary, but I knew I was going to lose. I don't think it was the guild acted unfairly. I don't like that rule. And now they've they're starting to do something to amend it but that was that's now anyway it's um you know it, it it makes me sad people were very sweet and they you know called me and told me stories about you know my wife worked on this and didn't get credit but then she got such one and, blah, 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 and everybody knows but everyone doesn't know um and uh i've never signed anything with speed on it um, and I don't need to sign things, but it just, it's an indication that it sort of isn't common knowledge and, and, uh, and that's okay. That doesn't bother me anymore. There's A lot of things out there that are, um, I, that I care much more about.
6: He thought he deserved it. And and you can see why their, their rules are, um, idiosyncratic. I ended up getting sole story credit on the movie Showtime. Okay. That was my idea. And I had submitted something or other. And I told the original writer, just give me co-story credit. And then he didn't. He just took full credit. And so I argued because it pissed me off because he, was, he really had never had a job. It was his first job. Okay. So I argued. And I get sole credit. I couldn't. I mean, I didn't think I deserved it. I couldn't believe it. You know? Um, and it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't argued. You know what I'm saying? But I'm saying, so that's what I'm saying. I have no idea how the rules work but whatever, Um, you know, Graham got sole credit. But Joss's agent did a mind-blowing job of promoting Joss's role in the movie so that Joss was getting a lot of credit at the time for a guy whose name wasn't on it. Um, He got a lot of credit for it.
3: Well, Jorge wanted to redirect... It was not the title of the time alien and so based on speed he got them to let me write a treatment based on that treatment they went back to Sigourney and then told me to write a new treatment that had Sigourney in it uh because they were on board but they didn't uh, feel comfortable doing it without her and she joined because of the script uh, but yeah, no, it was uh, it was the incredibly gratifying experience until it became the worst of my career. Um, at the
0: time, he's talking about the debacle of Alien Resurrection, which I'm sure is a story for another podcast. Now, since we're basically saying goodbye to them after this episode, where did the road lead for Walter and Laurie after all of this? They actually were offered an executive producer credit on the film, but they declined, partly because they were lining up an exciting new venture. I I do
1: remember us
0: having laid out the
1: rewrite on a bulletin board with uh, three-by-five cards, which is what we like to do with each act, and clearly saying the end of the second act is the death of Jeff Daniels, and laying it all out. And, And we were, I think, waiting to go and present it when we got the, uh, the strangest phone call from Mike Ovitz, then super agent, asking if we wanted to come and run Amblin Entertainment. It was one of a strange crossroads of a career for us, of a moment, but uh, which we ended up doing, but it was great. We were able to at least finish the work that had to be done on the script. I'm thinking back, though, you know, Laurie, props to Jorge, because had we made Men in Black
9: yet? I think we had developed it. We were working on developing.
1: We hadn't made it. So, so we were hardly producers of note, and Joss was hardly a writer of note. And you have this big movie going, and the fact that Jorge and Tom and that whole group somehow trusted the three of us to come in at that moment—I mean, that—that's pretty great. I mean, we we owe them a thank you. But there's a sort of a tone that you can see in most of Joss's work. We were saying, you know gold watch, fairly cheesy. I mean, just something as, as thrown away as that. There's a way that Josh is able to be a very tossed off in an otherwise production heavy environments. And it's, it's a really great gift. I, I just remember it was one of the best collaborations we ever had as as evidence the movie came out and we became friends and we immediately went to work on another movie soon after. So he, he was a pleasure in that way. You know, the the best experience we have with writers is when they bring, uh, you know, values that you can't even imagine. You know, we we, we can certainly contribute making a story very sturdy and s- fixing a lot of problems. We can have good ideas. But that sort of, you know, specificity of tone in the context of a big production heavy Hollywood movie, that's very hard to achieve. And that's one of Joss's superpowers.
9: If we tried, remember, Walter, we tried after we did Twister with Joss. We desperately wanted to make an overall deal with him at Amblin. And he was so committed to doing Buffy. Remember?
1: As a television show. We
9: tried to talk him out of this crazy idea of doing, you know, (laughs) Buffy is, you're going to give up, you're going to go back to television. (laughs) And uh, desperately tried to talk him out of it, but he was determined. And I'm glad he was. I think an original voice is such a a treasure, in, you know, in all writing, but particularly screenwriting.
3: I'm in there. Um, it's uh, to me, it sounds like just before people were starting to get the way that I wrote. I some of it, I think, it comes off really well, and I'm very proud of it. And some of it, every now and then, there's a phrase, I'm like I didn't know how I sounded yet. Like there's something that's just a little off. Or you know, it's they didn't know how to work it, or I gave them something that was a little unwieldy every now and then. But um, and it, you know, obviously when it came to Buffy, and I was then it was it was very specific, and I was very specific about it, and everyone sort of understood it. By the time I did Avengers, I realized that all of the actors were comfortable with it just already uh, because it had been in the world enough. Um, Yeah, so it was kind of a a funky progression to go back and then think, oh, yeah, that's where I was still learning my craft.
0: Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. With our stars in place, it's time to detail the unlikely casting of Jeff Daniels in the role of Jack Trevin's SWAT team partner, Harry Temple.
10: It was a job, the career was floundering, and I, I just told the agent, I need something. And you know, next thing I know, I'm wearing SWAT gear and, and bursting into a building. I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, but here I am.
1: The idea was to have somebody in there that would surprise you, that you would never think would die.
10: And I
4: felt I needed an actor that had more experience, and I needed to solo so that he could almost play off again.
0: The Emmy-winning actor talks about the desperation that brought him to the table and how 1994 would turn out to be a major turning point in his career.
10: We're doing promotion for Dumb and Dumber, which is being released in December. And Speed had just happened in the summer, and that would have been a big hit. And now here in December, you're in another big hit. And now you're hosting Saturday Night Live in January.
0: All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley, that's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.